everybody. Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership episode. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Each week, I have the privilege of being here on set with a different thought leader, sometimes colleagues inside Franklin Covey, authors from Franklin Covey's Broad Thought Leadership Division, or in other times, we choose to spotlight someone outside the company that we think represents a point of view, has an articulation of some research that would be really well adopted into your own leadership capability. Today, I am delighted to feature an internal Franklin Covey consultant and author, Hayden Shaw, who is the author of the newly released revised edition of Sticking Points. This book talks about how to get five generations working together in the 12 places that they come apart. Hayden Shaw, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, thanks for having me. Hayden, it is great to see you. You and I have been colleagues in the firm for 25 years. You and I have been friends for the better part of 20 of those 25 years. You predate me in the firm. You were part of the original Covey Leadership Center, which was Dr. Covey's original boutique consulting company prior to merging to become the Franklin Covey Company. You and Dr. Covey were very good friends. You tutored under him for much of your career. You and I spent the better part of um, seven years together in the Chicago region where you still live. You and your wife, Lori, have raised uh, four very successful children, and I'm delighted to have you on the program today. Talk about your new re-release, because it's been updated, book, Sticking Points. Hayden, before we talk a bit about the book, would you just reorient our listeners and viewers worldwide today on a bit of your own career inside of Franklin Covey for nearly 30 years. Talk a bit about why you originally wrote Sticking Points, gosh, I think almost a decade ago, and then why now you've chosen to re-release it. Well, I started with Franklin Covey uh, 28 years ago, almost 29, and uh, I've taught um, almost all the courses and materials that Franklin Covey does and and worked with 30,000 managers through the years and over 150,000 people in you know 3,500 different days of sessions. And so I've, I've been around for a while, but I also researched generations um, before I came to Frank and Covey. So I've been researching generations for decades, and that's what led Frank and Covey to say, hey, we'd like you to do a, uh, help us design a, a workshop as well as write a companion book to it. And so I began to dig through and um, paper files. Scott, I, I went through an entire filing cabinet of paper files I had saved to try to figure out where are all those pieces of things that I've been quoting through the years. And so um, it, it's now electronic, but but I first started 10 years ago digging through paper files, I have to say. Hey, it's an honor to have you on today. Your, your understanding of leadership, development, organizational culture, behavior change um, rivals everybody in this firm from your nearly 30 years of out teaching literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of leaders around the country and the world. Today, we're gonna talk about the impact that these five generations have in the workplace and talk also about how it may be changed for the better or for the worse in the midst of this pandemic now where most of us are still working virtually. What I'd like to do is open up and have you kind of redefine what are these five generations? Kind of how do we know which one that we're in? and maybe share an insight or two on each of the generations, perhaps what they think about themselves, and perhaps more in, um, interestingly, what other generations think about them. Let's take five or six minutes and have you walk through kind of a level set on the vernacular. What are the five generations and what should we know about each? Well, that's the biggest reason, Scott. I didn't answer the last question you asked, so I, I, can, I wanted to save it for now. 
the reason why we updated the book is because people have been saying for the last three years, when are you going to add Generation Z to things? And so that's why we have five generations is the book now adds Generation Z. And it looks at and it's updated all the research. Literally, they had to change the, the number, the ISBE number for the book because so much was changed and updated. Um, but we also looked at millennials. You know, now millennials are turning 40 next year. They're protected by age discrimination laws. But a lot of people still think of millennials as people in their 20s. Yeah. And so we've updated that aspect as well. So of the five generations, it starts with traditionalists and, and they're working their way out of the workplace. You know, they're, they were born before 1945 and they characterized themselves in a survey with Pew Research as um, best represented by the Great War, the World War II, um, honest, hardworking, and reasonable were the characteristics they gave themselves. Other generations sometimes see them as stuck in their ways, um, in families, people will say, hey, we've, you know, we send an email to everyone to plan the family reunion, but we have to call Aunt Agnes and, because she won't do email. And so sometimes they're seen as a bit resistant to technology and, and they are more conservative in the way they vote. And so in this election cycle, that sometimes creates some interesting aspects in families. Then you've got the baby boomers born 46 through uh, 64. Now, it, there's no exact date that people cut these off, but the baby boomers were a pretty clear surge on the graphs. And so everyone pretty much agrees with their beginning date. And most people agree with their ending date. And so uh, baby boomers, you know, they characterize themselves as respectful, as hardworking, um, and they characterize themselves as smarter than the other generations. On the other hand, other generations see baby boomers as being pretty self-referenced. Matter of fact, they were characterized as the me generation throughout much of their life. And other generations say the same thing. The baby boomers think it's kind of all about them, both in the larger marketplace as well as at work. Now, Gen X ironically sees themselves as smarter. They told Pew Research Center. They also see themselves as respectful and hardworking. Scott, are you seeing a theme here? All the generations pretty much <laughs> see themselves as unique with the same characteristics. And then other generations see Xers as cynical. That's one of the things they've been branded by. And, and one of their longest running shows is The Simpsons. And so I guess when you compare Bart Simpson and Cowabunga due to uh, Leave it to Beaver, they would definitely be more cynical than previous generations. And we're not even looking at Beavis and Butthead and the kinds of commercials or new shows that they watch. Uh, Xers watch more parody of the news than they actually watch television news itself. Um, thank you, Stephen Colbert. And so Xers, and then you've got millennials. You know, they are the can we build it? Yes, we can generation. They were raised by baby boomers with very high expectations and with a market that until the Great Recession wasn't doing badly at all. They could write their own ticket. They see themselves, of course, as technology. Um, Oriented, that's the number one thing they, they give for themselves is their one unique strength is technology, but they also see themselves as hardworking. They told Pew Research Center 10 years ago that they were conservative. And then lastly, um, that they're respectful. And then other generations see them as, well, you've heard the word entitled would be the number one word that would describe the negative aspects people give. Millennials, matter of fact, millennials are so frustrated being called millennials that many of them say, I wish we would quit talking about generation. Somebody asked me, hey, what's your next book? And I joked, it's called Your Millennials Wish You Would Quit Talking About Generations. And it's because they've been scalded by so much hmm. um, accusations. 
uh, about what they're, the negatives of their generation. And then lastly, Gen Z just coming out of college. Now, a lot of people, oh, I didn't give you the years on millennials. The millennials would be 81 through 98, whereas the Xers would be, uh, you know, 98 um, until not exactly sure when to end that. Probably about my grandkids' age, about two or three would be when, if it's based on past timeframes, about when Gen X will end. And so five generations in the workplace, definitely a lot of organizations don't have um, a lot of traditionalists anymore, um, but five, definitely five generations of customers or patients that you are citizens that you serve and deal with. Um, Gen Z, they see themselves, now they didn't participate in this Pew Research survey from 10 years ago, but surveys show they see themselves as technology savvy. They see themselves as hardworking, career oriented, and definitely as respectful and diversity oriented. The negatives, other generations called them snowflakes, and we can talk about why in a bit, why there is some truth to that. But actually, if you, um, if, if you call them snowflakes, you will earn their wrath for not being woke and not being familiar with neurodiversity. Hayden, you are by most measures the nation's foremost authority on generational differences. It's why we invited you to come on today with your new book, Sticking Points. You also have taught me over the years kind of not a different generation, but this concept of being a cusper. So I'm 52, born in 1968. I'm not technically a boomer. I'm not a millennial or a Gen X, whatever it is. But I kind of, I, I align, I guess, more with Gen X, but I behave more like a boomer because of how I was raised back in the, you know, the 70s and with conservative parents and such. How important is it to, to understand which generation you're from, but also to kind of be nimble and agile to realize that I do align with the generation, but I actually might behave more like the, the characteristics of one uh, previous to me. Well, Scott, you've just put your, uh, you just put your fingers on why um, generations can be dangerous. And so I think it's really important. One of my life's missions is to um, help people not overapply generational research. When I was doing the diversity inclusion days for Seattle, uh, in Seattle for Boeing, um, I mean, uh, that, you can tell how old how long ago it was. That's when the corporate office was still in Seattle, about eight years ago. The head of diversity and inclusion asked me, he said, in a Q&A time, where do you think generational differences falls compared to other differences? And I said, oh, that's fairly easy. Um, you know, how people think, the way their mind works, that would be the first one. And then gender, the research shows, plays a bigger impact than generational differences do on how people show up and approach the world, ethnicity and culture. And then I put generational differences after, after those as a lens we look through. But it's really easy for people to take generational differences, which is a bit like using a chainsaw to cut one of those, you know, sculptures, and you can begin to overuse it and overapply it. Um, if, you know, 80 million people don't easily fit into any one box. We're talking about general characteristics that statistically show up well but don't necessarily show up with any one person. So generalizations is when I apply a larger sociological statistical category to a group of people, stereotyping when I apply that generalization to any one person. So Scott Miller, because he grew up in a, you know, Florida, which was a fairly conservative state with parents who were pretty conservative and maybe a bit older than, um, you know, than the average parent, will have traditionalist characteristics 
a little few traditionalist characteristics, a lot of boomer characteristics, but then certainly embrace technology and, a lot, and music and a lot of Gen, Gen X things. And so you would have characteristics of, of multiple generations, as all of us would. By the way, the good news of that is it means we can identify and relate to different generations, and it doesn't become a, a huge stretch. Hayden, your book is fascinating because as one of the foremost thought leaders, at least in the Western Hemisphere, on these generational insights, you also don't over-apply them, right? You're, you're, you're kind of not an apologist, but you're also a defender in that you, you, you encourage us, you caution us not to place too much emphasis that knowledge is important, but if we use our prejudices to box people in, it's going to exacerbate the issue. Well, it definitely does. Um, the, I think one of the downsides of generational materials is that people often go online and go, okay, look, I found this. So that means you're like this and you're like this and you're like that. It, um, T. Roosevelt Thomas wrote a seminal book uh, 25 years ago in the diversity space where he talked about first generation diversity where we put everybody in little boxes. Oh, so you're Asian American female Gen X. So you would be like this and therefore I pull the lever and I know what two things to give you. It's almost B.F. Skinner-like. You have two pellets that, of motivation that I know now to give you. And talk about a, a, what Stephen Covey would have called a control paradigm versus a leadership paradigm. Um, that whole idea of you can reduce people down into any box. Uh, Scott, that's exactly where unconscious biases come from. That kind of reaction to the diversity and inclusion being about memorizing the boxes. Hayden, have you found that the interest in generational differences in the workplace is more heavily talked about and conversed about in the Western Hemisphere in the U.S. than other parts of the world? Uh, maybe a little more so. Definitely everyone focuses on it from a marketing standpoint. People pay a lot of money to find out how a 17-year-old buys differently than a 27-year-old or a 77-year-old. So everyone's paying for that. Um, other parts of the world do more research on it than, than some. Uh, maybe parts of Europe are a little less interested in it. Uh, it. It tends to be more academic studies around political issues than you know, how organizations work or function, but literally around the world. It, it's a topic of understanding. How do we get along in the office? How do we get along in families? Uh, aside from the marketing aspects, which tends to dominate the research. Hey, and the book is full of so many great stories and so much research. You actually talk a lot about what some of the myths are that are popularized around each of the generations. You talk about how, you know, uh, baby boomers and traditionalists are viewed as resistant to change. That people over 65 aren't viewed as being productive. Millennials think they know it all and that they ought to be running the place and that they're more motivated by meaning than by money. That Gen Xers care more about white uh, work-life balance than getting ahead and that Gen Z have stunted social skills because their heads are always down in computers and gamings and phones. How, how dangerous is it that we have formed maybe right or inaccurate paradigms about different generations, I'm guessing as leaders, it can be very dangerous because there are people that are part of generations that would say, well, that doesn't recognize any of my other interests, but that's not who I am. I think you said it really well. Uh, people will say that's not who I am. That doesn't recognize the rest of me. And uh, do Gen Zs prefer not to use the phone? Uh, that's how often baby boomers and Gen Xers define, you know, making uh, social skills, especially social skills at work, uh, making eye contact 
is less of a thing that younger generations have done or been trained to do. The firm handshake, it's not that they don't know how to do it. Um, it's that it, it's not naturally the first thing that they would think of or do. Even in this pandemic, uh, millennials are on their email about 65% of the time. A recent survey shows baby boomers are on their email about 37% of the time. So there are generational preferences in how we want to communicate and work together. So it's easy to say, well, that's just how you are instead of, well, you've got a range of things and this is what's needed with this generation or working on this project or on this team. We can help people navigate that. Hey, in a few moments, I'm going to have you address specifically what leadership suggestions you might get that can help people better assimilate and build a culture where they have different generations. And before we go there, you know, my own experience, I think I've shared before, I teach a class at my church here in Park City, Utah, every Sunday. It's a class to ninth grade boys as part of um, our church maturation process. And I, a couple of months ago, I was talking to these 10 or 12 boys that are about maybe about 13, 14 years old, and not a one of them had ever held a printed magazine in their hand, had, had never held them. In fact, they said, yeah, we know what they are. We see them at the grocery store, but they'd never held one. I had like nine of them in my briefcase. And in fact, in my own generation, you see you know, a pretty significant swing when it comes to book consumption going towards audio, a little less digital, quite frankly. Digital's kind of flat. Audio's on a, on a big rise in my generation for book consumption. Print's about flat. There's no question that there are significant generations, generational differences in how we consume information, how we behave. What are some of the ones that are generally not debatable that are help for, helpful for us to kind of know across generations and be more mindful of? Well, let's take some of them that you had mentioned. Older generations are less interested in technology. Maybe less so for resistance as I talk in the book and more so because of curiosity. What changes is not people's willingness to engage in technology. What changes is their curiosity after 50. And by the way, one of the reasons the research shows people are happier and less stressed after 50 is they're also less curious. They're like, hey, the, the app on my phone works great. And my son would say, hey, I found this new email app. Don't care. I know how to wax on, wax off, swipe white, swipe left. It's okay. Leave me alone. <laughs> and so I'm less curious as after I turn 50. Wait, wait, and what age does that start? Because I think I might be there. <laughs> 50 is where the research shows there's a clear statistical difference in happiness levels. We're less stressed and, more, and happier after 50. Yeah, I would and, debate uh, that research because I have a six-year-old and I'm stressed out of my mind. <laughs> well, Scott, your life cycle makes a big impact on your generation. That's why the cutting edge of generational research is life cycle, less so on generational age cohorts, because where you're at in the adult life cycle, you having a five-year-old, even though you may be a, a smidge older than some people are when they have a five-year-old, where you are in the life cycle <laughs> means your stress level can't go down for a while. Well, now you tell Sorry. me. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, hey, and go back to some of the themes that tend to be pretty true and resonant across the gener generations. What's not just um, conjecture, but generally pretty accurate? You bet, and baby boomers. Uh, baby boomers really were the me generation. They kind of do make things about them, the research shows. And they have such high expectations for themselves. 
literally the guy that kind of coined the phrase baby boomer called his book about the first book about the baby boomers, Great Expectations. And as a result, baby boomers are 6% less happy than the general population throughout their life because the expectations are so high. Wow. They feel like they really do have to be successful and happy because of you know the kind of the debt they owe to the previous generations and their unfinished business. So there's some truth to being the me generation. They're, they're a little stressed. And then Gen X, are they cynical? <laughs> Uh, yes. And they don't apologize for it. They don't see it as cynical. They see it as realistic. Yeah. Um, were they willing to leave organizations? That was a big complaint. Exers will leave an organization. Uh, yes, they're not as loyal. Uh, they've been called the Prince Charles of the organizational world. You know, th they can wait for 20 years and not get a promotion. They have to leave to move ahead in many cases. And then millennials, um, can millennials be entitled? You bet. That's why in the update of the book, I actually quote a conversation I had with the son who I'm visiting out here to see my grandkids. He said to me two years ago, are you still talking about all these generational differences? I got a mortgage and kids. Uh, yes, we are. But um, not all generate. He goes, I don't like a lot of millennials either, and I don't want to manage them. I think that's the biggest mistake is you older generations think we're all the same and that we all like each other so much. Millennials that have all the worst characteristics of millennials drive me crazy too. And then finally, Gen Z. Um, hey, they're snowflakes. You know, the research shows they definitely are far more open to talking about um, mental illness or what's called neurological diversity. They're far more open talking about it. Matter of fact, in a, in a survey with UCLA, freshman survey, 47% uh, of them said they plan to utilize campus uh, mental health resources. And my daughter is currently working in a mental health clinic on a rotation as a PA student. And uh, they have to come in early and work late because of how much COVID-19 and being here in restricted uh, living has impacted mental health for all generations. So, yeah, Scott, that's kind of a rundown of some of the big myths. And, yeah, there's a bit of truth to those. Like all urban legends have a bit of truth. But there's some good reasons for that. And that's not the whole story. Hey, and the tagline of your book is how to get five generations working together in the 12 places they come apart, or these 12 sticking points. They are kind of a quick rundown, communication, decision-making, dress code, feedback, fun at work, knowledge transfer, loyalty, meetings, policies, respect, training, and work ethic. I mean, I can relate to all of these. There were times in my career when I was in my 30s, and I did a bit of a shoot check. At the Chicago office, if you're wearing flip-flops, take them off because we have a professional brand here. And there were some time where we had some, you know, disagreements on why can't someone wear a flip-flop to the office or why does someone need to wear a shirt that covers their navel, right? I, that's, the, that's the traditionalist coming out of me. I love some of these questions, you know, around communication. Why won't they put their phone down and make eye contact? Decision-making. How many years do I have to sit here before they'll listen to me? Dress clothes. What's wrong if I wear sandals with clients? Uh, fun at work. When did work have to become fun? Uh, take a few moments and riff on these 12 sticking points and what as leaders can we learn from being aware of when these generations start to bub, um, bump up against each other and how can the leader become a little bit of a, a conduit, if you will? Scott, I wrote the book because my life's work after November is this. Okay, Boomer, have a terrible day. So when Okay, Boomer came out, it doesn't October of last year, it just seemed like a million years ago. Well, tell us about um, this. What does Okay, Boomer mean? 
So Gen Z kind of entered the workplace and entered the political discussion with a rocket launcher because they did this whole kind of campaign. Reddit had had memes or maymays, as my wife first called it, and my children <laughs> still make fun of her. Oh, look at this great maymay. So to this day, Lori is still bashed by her by the children that she loved and raised. Anyway, the uh, memes are about boomers and, you know, boomers comments on you could have a house if you didn't have to have avocado toast and, and fancy coffee. Um, and, you know, dumb things that older generations say. So my life's work is so that workplaces don't have boomers that deserve the whispered, okay, boomer comments. Okay, boomer. Okay, boomer. And also so that older, you know, so older generations get it and younger generations don't need to say it because they really like working with. They say, okay, that boomer's okay. If we don't understand some of the sticking points, then we unwill, uh, unwittingly and sometimes unwillingly walk into those issues. And I love the story you told. Um, one, of the, one of the most meaningful things about doing this work, Scott, is when you told me when I realized that they, you know, the flip-flops didn't matter if there wasn't a client in the office, you know, as long as they had dress shoes. Um, Hayden, it was your speech that made me realize I can be more flexible on that. That's a generational thing. Well, Scott, a sticking point is anytime generations answer the same question with a very different answer based on when they were raised. And so once we once we understand those, we just begin to relax and go, oh, not a big deal, not a big deal. Mm, that one's a big deal. That's not a big deal. And so sorting out the big deals from the not a big deals makes us all a lot smarter, raises our generational IQ. That's just good life advice, right? That's good marriage advice right there. You know what? The five-step process I talk about in the book. And so each of the sticking points goes through the five-step process. So it was really fun that one of our clients said we, we chose Franklin Covey because we read 10 books on generations, and this was the most practical. So what happens in each of the sticking point chapters is we go through why the generations think the way they do, and then we walk through the five-step process for leading generations more effectively. And it helps to get people talking so that the st generational sticking points aren't the places that get us stuck. They're the places that make us pause so that we can then talk to each other and stick together better. It actually creates better teams if we'll take some time to understand each other better. You know, Hayden, you and I have been friends for 20 plus years, and you know this is now my 24th year at the Franklin Covey Company. It's your 28th year. Um, our parents also were quite, you might call, loyal to their employers. My father worked for his company for 32 years. And so for us, that was just what you did, right? Kind of the Prince Charles. You just stayed, and it wasn't because you didn't have options. You just would never think of leaving because there was this sense of loyalty. And the younger generation is behind us. That makes us, us freaks, so, Scott. That makes us kind of freaks of nature to, to well, be it our does generation. Now. Yeah, it yeah. Made, thank, thank you for that compliment. It makes us dinosaurs. And now we often see the younger generations as being disloyal because the average tenure is, you know, 18 to months to three years. But in fact, that isn't necessarily true. Would you take a few minutes and address what I think is the glaring issue of how the different generations view loyalty as it comes to their tenure in the workplace? Well, I've updated the book to include some of the things I talked about in a TEDx talk that you know, ended up getting, it didn't go viral, but it, it had you know, over 100,000 views. And it's called Why Half of What You Heard About Millennials is Wrong. Not because the statistics you've heard about millennials are wrong, although half of those really are urban legends. I don't know where some people get the survey data they get. Um, 
But half of what you hear about millennials is wrong because it's not about their generation. It's about their life stage. The cutting edge of generational leadership uh, research is life stage. And so understanding the different life stages also helps us understand why people do what they do. And millennials have been in the life stage that Gen Z is now entering called emerging adulthood. Between 18 and 28 is this new life stage sociologists identified about 15 years ago. We haven't had a new one since adolescence back in the 1890s. And this new life stage basically says that people are not adolescents, but they don't see themselves as fully adult. 80% of of people in their 20s don't see themselves as fully adult until they're about 27 or 28. And that's actually edged up a bit with Gen Z. They don't plan to move into kind of the adult phase of life until their 30s. Um, They want to put their focus on their career. And so that's a big difference, Scott, is if it's a life stage, then it means each new generation is going to face it, and we got to figure it out. Here's why this is important. I was working with with a leadership team from the Department of Defense, and one of them said, I just am hoping the next generation, uh, we kind of have a pendulum swing, and they're more conservative, and they'll just stay. So we don't have to deal with the millennials again. And I said, hey, this is a life stage, not a generational thing. So I wouldn't hold my breath and wait. I'd figure out what to do because this is the new reality. So I think it's a life stage as much as a generation why people leave. Hey, Hayden, from your research, what myths would you dispel around the, the term we hear about, we have a crisis of retirement happening, right? You heard it back on 9-11. And then you yeah. heard it in the 07-08 financial meltdown. Now you're hearing it again in um, post-COVID that people can't afford to retire and such and that the opportunities right. may not be as strong as they are. Any insights you'd offer on how you see the retirement waves of boomers moving out of the workplace, uh, uh, flexible career yeah. choices? What, what insights would you share from all of your research? Yep, three things to say about that. Oh, and by the way, since Scott and I have known each other so long, Scott Miller would say to me at dinner, you just say three things and make them up. I don't think you know the three before you say it. So That's because you're a wanna... genius. That's because you're just... just an extemporaneous genius and everybody can feel it. Give me the three things. Uh, yeah, I, so I just want to acknowledge that I did have three things, Scott, before I actually said <laughs> sure three. You I just want to sure be transparent with that. Number one is, Yes, we're seeing it all over again. Just about the time boomers announce their retirement, we get a new worldwide thing that happens, like the Great Recession or now uh, the next worldwide recession. Um, We see that impact. And so boomers are like, nope, the 401k just turned into a 40k. Until (laughs) until we get a third digit back, I'm not retiring. And so, you know, understandably speaking. Secondly, organizations can't afford boomers to retire. It'd be a good thing if some boomers said, I don't want to be in charge anymore. That would help some organizations keep some great people. Um, But uh, organizations can't afford to lose boomers simply because uh, around the world, the workplace doesn't have, uh, the, the demographics don't support continued economic growth unless we can get some of them to come back to work. We just happen to need them, not just for their knowledge transfer, their great um, insight and experience, we just need them to be workers. And so organizations, rather than doing a, um, and we talk about this in the uh, chapter, uh, sticking point on knowledge, uh, you know, knowledge transfer, many organizations don't even have a knowledge transfer approach. They're just inviting boomers back in with flexible schedules or such. And then lastly, and I think this one is the scariest, 
it's to, it, it could be debated that people 65 and above, to your point in the when you ran down a list of stereotypes, Scott, earlier on, it could be debated that 65 and above is the most stereotype, most discriminated against group in organizations because um, when surveys are checked, 25% of managers give people 65 and above a lower performance rating, even if their performance objectively is equal. And it's not just younger managers that do it. Managers that are over 65 still rate 65-year-old employees 25% lower than everyone else. There's a huge stereotype we have that 65 is old age and you're on your dotage and you can't perform anymore. And uh, so that'd be the third point. There really are a lot of myths to break down in age discrimination. Um, that generational research and understanding can help you with. Hayden, send us off on the leadership topic. You know, you and I, although you're vastly older than I am, what we share in common is this idea that in our generation, uh, you know, becoming a leader of people was kind of the path you were supposed to be on, right? That most people did not serve 30 years as an individual producer. If you wanted to earn more money, if you wanted to have a bigger title, more influence, more power, you had to lead people. So oftentimes we were lured into leadership roles versus led. Uh, what are you finding is different with these younger generations, Gen X, Gen Z, around their propensity, their desire to be a leader of people as opposed to just being a you know, kick-ass individual producer, getting in and getting out and go living their life? What, what are the big differences, if any, with the younger generation as it relates to becoming a leader of people? I have three things, but I won't tell you I do, okay? <laughs> um, Number one, Roundstead did a survey where they discovered worldwide survey where they discovered that millennials did not want to lead um, because they didn't want the extra pressure and they didn't want people uh, that were peers to not like them. They're a bit more tribal. Other generations didn't want to lead because they didn't want the added pressure. They didn't want the added time demands. So around the world, 49% of people said they would be interested in being a manager. 51% uh, of people said they would not. So those people who lead and manage are actually in a small minority, okay, 49%. Um, younger generations are interested in it, but they see leadership as something they can do right now. Now, this is a big myth that the, boom, uh, the, the, the boomers and Xers often have, that the uh, millennials and Gen Z, they want to they run things as soon as they get in. What they want is a seat at the table where they can at least learn, and they don't want to sit at the card table at Thanksgiving for the next seven years while they pay their dues and they wait their turn. Doesn't mean they think they should be running the place. Matter of fact, surveys show they realize they don't have nearly as much business knowledge as the older generations. That's why they want a seat at the table to learn more quickly. But they want to be more actively engaged and in a less hierarchical situation. So that's the big difference there. And then finally, Scott, I think we're looking at a different world where leadership is a little less about Jack Welch, a, you know, a, a remarkable leader um, and the superstar CEO leader. And a lot of the, the leadership research today is about leading from the side and especially leading in different cultures around the world where the, uh, you know, the heroic um, personality CEO is less of the emphasis and more on just good leadership um, around things. As Peter Drucker said years ago, we don't need more charismatic leaders. That led us into the problems of World War II. We, we need more great managers that can make organizations great rather than leaders great. And I, I think we're looking at younger generations who see that as a, a, as a viable leadership option, viable option in managing.
Hayden, close us out with me as a guinea pig leader. Uh, I serve as an executive vice president here at Franklin Covey. I have a small team now after I left the chief marketing officer role, but I have people who report to me in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So I have five generations that right now today report to me. I don't actually ever think about how their generation impacts their work or their thinking. Of course it does, and maybe perhaps I should think about it more. What advice would you give someone like me that's leading five generations today? Are there some, some, some significant touch points, if you will, uh, that I could be mindful of that would make me a better leader? Well, certainly. And let me put a disclaimer on this. If you already have naturally figured out the generational differences so you can get down to work and you're not running into a lot of challenges, you know, and life stage is even more obvious. We know that somebody who has, in, you know, in, during COVID-19, has children at school age who are not physically in school, they're going to need a little more flexibility. So we know the life stage impacts things as opposed to somebody whose children are out of the house. And so kind of a different world. Like, so sometimes, Scott, we don't think about it because we already have thought about it. We already get a lot of it. But how can we be more mindful of it? Well, that's what the five-step process does. Step number one is we simply acknowledge when something comes up, oh, hey, after going through the sticking point book, I think this might be a generational thing. And we identify it. We acknowledge it as generational. The second thing we do is begin to get curious and have conversations about why somebody else would think that way. Really easy to say, what is wrong with your generation? You want to be running the place. Or what's wrong with your generation? Why are you always looking at your phone? Instead, we get curious and we say, hey, I noticed that you're looking down at your phone a lot. What's that mean? One, of, one client I was working with, Scott, the young woman said, well, I don't understand some of the terms you're using. And so I'm looking them up on Google rather than slow down the meeting. Or it could be, you're really slow and boring and I find my phone more interesting. <laughs> Scott, that would be me. Uh, that would be me. And as I say in the book, one of my colleagues years ago sent out a message saying, what do you do to keep people off the phone in your sessions? And people sent her many practical ideas. I just wrote back, be more interesting, to which she wrote back, you're an idiot. And uh, that was our loving exchange hey, with Sidney Callett. I have to interject, and I hope the CEO won't mind me sharing this. Uh, I report to our chairman, who everybody knows I adore and I'm very loyal right. to. And a couple years ago, he asked me if I could spend less time on my phone during his executive meetings. In my bold way, I said, yes, if you'll make them faster paced and less boring. We both kind of laughed for a moment and we, and we both rose to the challenge. But that actually happened. Scott, you just had a generational conversation there. Yeah. You yeah. began to ask why. He asked, you, you gave a why. <laughs> what's it, it, The biggest me message I could leave your listeners is that what's divide, why's unite. Get curious and focus on why's and you'll build bridges across any form of diversity, not just generational diversity. Then we begin to flex. Once we understand somebody, we begin to flex. You mentioned marriage or other family relationships earlier, Scott. Once we understand the other person, we go, ah. Oh. That's why I wrote the whole ghost story section. So there's a quick overview of the stories that each generation tells about why they think the way they do. Because once you understand their stories, just like in a love relationship, you go, mm, still irritates me, but not a big deal because I understand why it matters to you. Hayden, um, final minute, finish off the five steps. You bet. Step number four is where we leverage the differences. Flexing just gets us back. As Peter Drucker pointed out years ago, when we solve a problem, we just get back to, to status quo. 
But it's when we go farther and leverage the differences that we actually create some value. By the way, what do Gen Z see about scrolling speed? Because, you know, uh, uh, Facebook had to change their algorithms on time on each page because Gen Z scrolls so quickly looking for graphics rather than words. Gen Z scrolls so quickly that they had to measure scrolling speed and not just time on page because it wasn't giving people adequate um, due to how much Gen Zs were paying attention. So what is it about graphics and scrolling speed that they understand that older generations that are more word-oriented uh, word don't? What do magazines need to understand about Gen Z? What you learned when you were teaching at your church. So what, what, are, what are they gonna tell us that will help us go forward? Uh, and then lastly, sometimes we just need to resolve them. Sometimes we need to come to a conclusion after we've had this conversation on our team and as a group, make a decision what our temporary policy should be. Until the team changes or things change, we're gonna put a stake in the ground and we're gonna resolve that our meetings are gonna have this format because we don't wanna have the first um, Tuesday of the month being an Xer meeting and the second Tuesday of the month being a boomer-oriented meeting where everybody's on their phones. We wanna agree on what our meeting practices will be. And then we, it's open, we can revisit it just like you and, and Bob, our CEO did. You can revisit it, but we come up with some agreements that give some guidance to how people function as our team, and as our organization. Hayden, I heard once that you were qualified to join Mensa. Is that true? Scott, I am not. I'm just a couple of points low. So I'm, uh, I, you know, the Mensa people come and kick sand at my, in my I'm face. I'm only a couple beach. of dozen points low myself. Hayden Shaw, you are a genius. You're an incredibly fine person, uh, a dear friend and uh, esteemed colleague inside the Franklin Covey Company. You are one of our most booked keynote speakers around the world. You are still available for virtual keynotes and hopefully in the not too distant future for live on-site keynotes as well. You deliver most all of our content now virtually to clients. You are available uh, to talk about uh, Sticking Points. Your new book is out now, Sticking Points, How to Get Five Generations Working Together and the 12 Places They Come Apart. Hayden, thank you for the great conversation today. Say hello to your family and Franklin Covey is honored to provide this platform for you today. Scott, thank you for having me. It is truly an honor. It's our pleasure to have given you the platform. And thank you for joining us today. We're honored that you're subscribing to the On Leadership series. If you're not doing so, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. We'd love to have you subscribe, as well as for your family, your friends, and your colleagues. Our weekly podcast comes out each Tuesday via an email newsletter where we have both a video and audio version. We also have a downloadable Franklin Covey tool and a blog that I write each week about it. It's also available on all your favorite podcast channels. You can access it there via audio, and we'd love to have you review it and rate it as well. And we'll see you back here next week for a new interview on leadership. <laughs>